The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your word. We pray now, Lord, that it would speak to our hearts. We pray, God, that you would just open us, prepare us to to hear what you have to say to us. We ask that you would bless us tonight. And as we turn to the book of Judges, that we would see your word living and active and relevant and forming uh, for our lives. We ask that you would draw us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we have finished the book of Joshua, and we are moving uh, now into the book of Judges. We will um, be here tonight. Next week is Thanksgiving Eve. We'll be here at 6.30. I hope you'll be with us, unless you are... We, we, are doing, we will be here at 6.30 next week for the Thanksgiving Eve service. That's a, a, a Eucharistic service. Um, so same time, same channel, uh, but different subject. Uh, we will be talking about Thanksgiving, uh, obviously, and have Eucharist. But, um, but then we'll pick up with uh, three weeks. So we'll uh, do three more weeks on Judges. And then we'll be done for Christmas. And actually, we'll be done with Wednesday night programs until Lent. Uh, I'm going to lay it down. And I am going to focus on uh, men's ministry, men's discipleship. Uh, we're going to work on that. Um, and get some guys because you know you ladies most of you ladies are involved in another Bible study either on Wednesday mornings or Monday nights and if you're not involved in one of those we'll help you start another one but they're just bursting at the seams guys are just sitting back and watching it happen so we are not you guys obviously but we are uh, going to encourage uh, fellas to to join us so um, so that'll be taking place next semester we will have uh, Wednesday night programs during Lent Thursday, oh, you're right, of course, a Thursday night Bible study, and that's, uh, that's the, the co-ed Bible study. So, yeah, we've got lots of Bible studies, but we, um, we, are, we want more. We want more. What I would really like, if our average Sunday attendance is 280, that every week we also average 280 uh, attendance in small groups. Uh, that's, that's my goal. Ah, I, I turned on the recorder for you, but I'm glad you're here. So... Um, not to draw attention to the fact that you're here, but you're late. So, no, don't, nobody look at the Washingtons. Don't look at them uh, as they're coming in. <laughs> so, so sorry. No, no, no. I, I really, I've turned on the recorder for you. And I'm just getting started. So, uh, Judges is a remarkably contemporary book of the Bible. Obviously, it is incredibly ancient uh, history. But you will see, I hope... How incredibly contemporary uh, it is. Now, it, of course, it follows the book of Joshua chronologically. <coughs> uh, Joshua, as you, if you remember, most of you were here last week, uh, Joshua ended uh, with, uh, the, it says, They served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders after Joshua. But you also remember that it ends, the book of Joshua ends with three funerals. Remember, uh, Joshua dies, then they bury Joseph that they've been carrying around his bones for all these years, and then they, uh, then they, they bury Eliezer, who is the son of Aaron, who was the priest. So they buried Joshua the prince, they bury Joseph the patriarch, and Eliezer the priest. Three Ps. And, um, and what we see there in the, those funerals is the end of an era. 
right? It's the end of an era. And so uh, as the book of Judges unfolds, you hear this refrain repeatedly that follows the end of that era of faithfulness. You hear the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We hear that over and over again. And then the book of Judges actually ends with what I think is one of the most chilling uh, passages, uh, lines in all of Scripture, and that is uh, that there was, it says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king, so every, it was free for all, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you can't draw your line, line from there to 2017, then you're not paying attention, right? And so, um, to Everyone in our culture, and let's not pretend that we're not influenced by that as Christians, right? So everyone is doing what is right uh, in their own eyes. So Joshua is a book about a people who were supposed to be faithful to God, but instead were capitulating to the secular uh, culture around them. That's really what the book of Joshua, I mean, the book of Judges, is about. A people who are supposed to be faithful to God, and yet who are capitulating to the culture uh, around them. Um, it's not a book about how to avoid capitulating. You've got to draw those conclusions on, on your own. It is a book about the consequences of capitulation. <laughs> the consequences. But it's also a book about the faithfulness of God through that. Through that season of capitulation. Uh, when the people of God are not faithful, God remains faithful. First and foremost, to Himself. We've talked about that uh, before. But He's also, and it's actually good for us, that He's first faithful to Himself because He's the, he's the only one who, as God, can, deserves that. And yet we are to follow His lead and be faithful to Him uh, as well. But God remains faithful first to Himself, but also to His people. And certainly to the promises that He has made. The covenant promises that He has made. Interesting to see that, that especially for our culture, and when all these voices, and, and you and I may have said it uh, many times as well, I cannot believe what's happening to our culture. I cannot believe what's happening to our country. I cannot believe what's happening to my family. I cannot believe... We just look around us and see this sort of flushing of our, of our faith in our, in our culture. What we see in the book of Judges is that God is not ours to save. God is not ours to save. He saves us. Right? He, we, he doesn't need us to be faithful to Him in order to, be, to, to remain on His throne. Um, Judges declares unflinchingly that God remains on the throne. So, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be worried about our culture or that we shouldn't be worried about ourselves. Uh, but it does mean that um, what it says is that the, the secularization or the syncretization of our culture does not mean that, as Frederick Nietzsche said uh, prophetically, that God is dead. Now, I don't, I don't know, I'm not a Nietzsche scholar, but I think what Nietzsche actually was saying there is in his observation the church had, failed, had, had ceased to really trust in God. The ones who should have been faithful were capitulating to the culture. I think, and you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Nietzsche's full quote was, God is dead and we have killed him. 
So, um, but what Judges says is that though the faith of God may faith in God for the people may be completely dormant, God is not. Um, Judge, Judges also declares that just because all the promises of God are not fulfilled in our lifetime, now this is really important, that just because the promises of God are not fulfilled in our lifetime, that doesn't mean that He's not fulfilling them. And that is really important for us to hold on to. And we've got 70 to 90 years, right? God is the God of millennia. And He is, uh, you know, Caleb died after Joshua. Caleb was the last one of that generation. Caleb never saw the monarchy. He never saw faithfulness in Israel. And yet God, what we have is the record of God moving towards the Davidic line and ultimately towards Christ. And so just because we don't see the the fullness of God in our life doesn't mean God is not full. (laughs) Or that we don't see the fulfillment of His promises doesn't mean God's not fulfilling. Does that that make sense? Do you hear hear what I'm saying there? Um, And I think, I think, I find that personally helpful. That we um, we see so we see that in the in the book of Judges. Um, I always think about I talk about Frank Limehouse a lot. Uh, he was my mentor at, uh, in my the dean of the cathedral in, in Birmingham for most of the time I worked there, and he always talks about his father who came to came to a saving faith in Christ at at age ninety. And I just think about, I, what I always think about when he tells that story or mentions that is how Frank's parents and most, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Frank's grandparents and most of the friends, uh, Christian friends that, that Frank's parents would have had died without ever seeing his father come to Christ. And yet he did. And so just because we don't see it in our lifetime doesn't mean it's not happening. And that's a great comfort, uh, I think. Uh, so the, for those uh, who are concerned about the culture, I think that Judges provides enormous comfort. And yet, for those who are marrying their faith to the culture and trying to make it out to be the same thing, Judges also provides pretty stern warnings. So... Um, One of the things you should know is that Judges is pro-monarchy. And what I mean by that is Judges is heading towards uh, the Davidic line. It is proving, in a sense, that without a leader, Israel will always be unfaithful. Repeatedly, they will be unfaithful. And that God has to raise up uh, a leader. Uh, And ultimately... uh, Judges is moving us towards, for us Christians, is moving us towards Christ uh, to see that we need a king. I called this uh, session, this, this teaching, Deborah and the Dominoes, because we, we're going to look a little bit at, a little bit at, at the, really the, the best of the judges. It was Deborah. And um, she was perhaps the best uh, judge in Israel. She was a faithful prophetess. Uh, but like a series of dominoes, which you, you've seen that many times, you touch the first one and they just call, fall down. We begin to see the line move. We begin to see the faith of Israel and uh, the purity of Israel uh, fall uh, all the way down the line. So this is the cycle. 
And I, I just for efficiency, I drew a map of Israel in the middle of it. Uh, but this is really the cycle we see in Judges over and over again. The people rebel. God gets angry. God allows their enemies to oppress them. They're given over to the Canaanites or the Philistines or whoever it is. The people realize because of the oppression, the people cry out, help us. Then God raises up a judge to deliver them, usually militarily. Then they have peace. Then they get lazy. The judge dies. And the people rebel. Over and over again. Here's where we see, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over again. We see that, that line. So it's just this cycle that goes over and over again. And, and, and if you think about it, you could probably uh, accord your life in this cycle of faith, right? I, I woke up in a ditch. I was doing the things I shouldn't do, whatever. Uh, and, and God sort of gave me over to that. We'll talk about God giving over. If there's oppression in my life. I cried out for mercy. I repented. God sent in some way. He sent me to church. He sent a friend. Uh, and then there was peace in my life. And then I got lazy. And I rebelled again. So we can, it's, a, it's a pretty human cycle, uh, I think. All right. So, uh, Judges, uh, we're going to spend most of our time in, in chapter 2. Anything, any, so that's all sort of introductory. Uh, any pushback, any questions, anything to say about what I've said? Anything not clear? Okay. So, Judges chapter 1, after the death of Joshua. In fact, it starts, so if you've got your Bible, you can see, it's the very beginning line is, after the death of Joshua... The people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Um, the conquest continues. We see the, the, in these several verses. But towards the end of these verses, cracks begin to show. So there's conquest. We're, we're just kind of picking up where we left off. We're trying. We're driving out Canaanites. It, you know, what's interesting and, and probably telling is that in this line, no, there, is no, um, there is no subsequent leader that is named. I mean, the natural choice would be Caleb, who probably is certainly getting along in years himself. But hopefully a good leader, if Joshua was in fact a good leader, and we think he was, uh, that he was raising up someone to come after him. But no one is shown to be the leader of Israel. And the people uh, inquire of the Lord. This is what, um, you don't have it in front of you, but just take, take my word for it or read it for yourself. Uh, but the people inquire of the Lord, who's going to go up against the Canaanites? And the Lord speaks right back to him and says, Judah shall go up. You know, the tribe of Judah. And, and promptly, Judah invites Simeon, another tribe uh, of Israel, to go along with him. Which is interesting because that is it's this very seemingly innocent, uh, militarily strategic move. And yet... There's a sense in which Judah is sort of hedging its bets against the command of the Lord. God didn't say, Judah can go up and just pick whoever you want to go with you. He said, Judah go. And Judah said, oh, Simeon, why don't you come along with me too? Just in case. Just in case. And, and they route the Canaanites. They drive them out. But you just even there, I think, it's, I think the author of Judges, we don't know who the author of Judges was. Historically, traditionally, it's Samuel, but we don't know for sure. Um, 
But there is a, there's the beginning. That's the first domino. Where, where uh, Judah, said, Judah says, I am going to do what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going alone. And nevertheless, the Lord is faithful. He conquers the Canaanites. We see in this section where they take Jerusalem, which of course is historically very important, um, where the Jews take Jerusalem. But as the battles listed in this section go on, we begin to see that they lose steam. And we see things like, but they could not drive the, out the inhabitants of the plains. Well, why not? I mean, the Lord has always uh, won the victory for them. Uh, Benjamin did not drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. Wouldn't have been that significant to them then. We, we're getting along. They're providing a service. They're, they, we, they can have their market. We can be over here. We're living fine. But we know that Jerusalem was where the temple was going to be. And so statements like that are clues to us that the cracks are beginning to show. Just little offhand comments that act as clues. And then, and starting in verse 27, uh, the author lists out just failure after failure of the different tribes who were supposed to take care of different things and how they didn't get the people out. Now remember, this was not about conquest in the sense that they were showing that they were the strong ones, uh, you know, the, the survival of the fittest. This wasn't ethnic cleansing. Uh, this was about spiritual uh, purity, right? The, the concern throughout Joshua that we saw was the inclination of the human heart to idolatry, just like the, the great reformer John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories, and so always Joshua is concerned uh, uh, on behalf of the Lord. The Lord is uh, his concern uh, is that if the idols of the people stick around, then the people of Israel are going to go after the idols rather than after the Lord. And it's mind blowing to read that because we see don't didn't don't you remember just just a, I mean, just a few pages ago, you were brought up out of Israel. Don't you remember uh, the, cloud, the pillar of cloud and the, the pillar of fire and the crossing of the, the Jordan River and the, and the walls of Jericho? Don't you remember? But man, life goes on. You got diapers to change and you got bills to pay and you got, I mean, things, life gets hard and you just kind of get in it, don't you? I mean, you can see how faith wanes. It shouldn't. Thank you so much for being here. I hope this is, this is building up your, your faith as we see the work of God. But we can identify, we understand, if we are honest about our own lives, we can see how sometimes it's easy to just forget. Right? So, yes, Gina. Um, you didn't read it, but what is the symbolism to that cutting off the 72 thumbs and uh, big toes? Oh, you know, I don't. So, so what she's asking about the um, they cut when they caught the um, one of the kings, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes, and he said, "I cut off. I had. I caught seventy other kings. I cut off their thumbs and big toes, and now I'm getting what is what I deserve, basically." Yes. And they didn't want to be able to hold a cup of coffee. So it just, it was just. Um, yeah. um, so, I, you know, I, 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 I mean, it was just, it was cultural. 
What's interesting is we might think, oh my gosh, how can the people of God do something so grisly? And yet, interesting, that guy said, I'm basically getting what I deserve. I mean, he didn't, he didn't see it as, it was their culture. He didn't see it as particularly grisly. Um, but that's the, I mean, the significance, I don't know that there's a particular, he just, it's interesting to me that he says, I'm getting what I, uh, what I deserve. Okay. Um, so, again, it's about spiritual purity, this conquest, um, but it was not acceptable to God that their hearts be given to idolatry. I mean, the first commandment, right? Have no other gods before me. All right, so this is very interesting. So we're going to get into chapter 2 now. Uh, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke those words, all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim. And they, they sacrificed there to the Lord. Okay. So, he, so this is such a unique visitation of the angel of the Lord. We see the angel of the Lord uh, many times. Uh, throughout the Old Testament. This is unique. First of all, he doesn't just appear. He goes up. Like We see that he's traveling. The angel of the Lord. He goes from Gilgal. Do you remember Gilgal? That was the first camp of Joshua uh, around uh, was where they uh, marched on Jericho from Gilgal. And also, if you remember, that's where the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua. And Joshua said, are you for us or against us? He said, no, I'm for the Lord. So, um, so we see he like leaves that place where the last place we saw him and goes up to Bochum. Now, Bochum is also called Bethel. In fact, it's more, much more commonly called Bethel. But what is interesting, that's where, I don't know if you can tell from where you're sitting, these are angel wings. So that's where we are. You can see this is the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is about right, right, about right there. And so... The, Bethel is in this area here, and the wings are the you know, angel of the Lord. But that's, that's where we're talking about, where he goes up and he speaks to the people. Bethel, the word Bethel, means the house of God. Beit El means the house of God. Bokim means weeping. And so it can't be the house of God because they, they have spurned God, and now it's a place of weeping. So, weeping, crying. Tears. And actually we see when the Lord speaks to them still, I mean, these are people that remember because they're just, I mean, they, these, were, these almost surely were the ones who were raised under the leadership of Joshua. And so they are crying out. Or at least they're raised under the ones raised under the leadership because it said they were faithful during the elders. But they, they know who God is. And they know that, um, uh, they know that if... God says to them, the people around you are going to be a snare to you and they will be thorns in your sides, that that is bad news. 
And one another thing that is really interesting and very unique about this, in fact, I can't think of another time in all of Scripture is that the Word of the Lord is speaking not through a prophet or to a prophet, but to the whole people. I cannot think of another time where God addresses the whole people in the Old Testament. There may be a time, but I can't think of it. And I've kind of given a little bit of thought. But one of the things to think, consider is that this is slow in coming. And that's why we see in the, this is all introductory material in the book of Judges. And we saw that long list of time and time again that the people had not followed through on what God had told them to do. They'd failed in their conquest. Uh, they compromised. In fact, what we, some of the times we see that they didn't drive them out, but uh, they put the people, the Canaanites, were as forced labor. So not only did we not, only did we not uh, eliminate the people or drive them out of here so that we wouldn't fall, but we actually enslaved them. I mean, the whole, th- the whole reason not to take the bounty was, uh, was so that, that um, they, could, they would all rely on the Lord and, and Him only. Now they're relying, not only are they not relying on the Lord, but they're relying on forced labor, which certainly wouldn't have been pleasing to the Lord. I mean, it was part of the culture, right? I mean, it was, slavery was very common. And not like slavery that we think of in our, in our uh, history books, uh, in American slavery, although there, I'm sure there was some, some of that as well. But it was, it was sometimes indentured servitude. It, they, were, they, were, they had their own homes, they were, they were just, but they were owned. They... Um, and they were forced. Okay. So it was slow in coming. It was after a long pattern already of compromise all throughout Israel, several, many of the tribes. Uh, and what we see is, the, we hear this over and over through the Old Testament, the Lord is slow to anger, full of compassion, abounding in steadfast love. Right? He's slow to anger. And we see that. But now, but He's not a God who won't anger. So He's had enough. And He shows up and He speaks to the people. Um, and it seems to say he's uh, he seems to be saying seems to me that he's saying that you people are actually going to get what you've been going after. You are going to suffer the consequences of the things that you have been pursuing. We see this again in Romans chapter one. Uh, let me read that uh, for you. It's a, it's a pattern of, of judgment, really. Um, I meant to mark that. Let's see. Romans chapter one. You may remember this. Uh, where he says, uh, for although they knew God, this is Paul speaking, not, not at the time of Judges, but talking about the people uh, in his own time. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Idols. Right? Therefore, this is, what's, this is scary. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So God gave them, they were pursuing those things, and so God said, okay, that's what you want, you, you get it. And you're going to find that that in itself is judgment. We see this again in the teaching of Jesus. In fact, in the, um, the parable that we'll look at, well, I'm, I don't think I'm going to preach on it, but the parable of the talents is the, is the gospel reading for this Sunday coming up. And um, you remember, so one gets five talents, 
and he makes five more, fantastic. Another one gets two talents, he makes two talents more, fantastic. He, never, he doesn't end up with as much as the first guy started with, but he still doubled what he had. So, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to the joy of your master. But remember the, the one talent servant? He buried it, he said, because he said, I knew you to be a hard man reaping what you did not sow. And what does he get? He gets God, the master is the hard man who reaps what he does not sow. He takes that dollar away, that talent, it's like a million dollars, but he took, took it away and gave it to the one who had already had ten. So he actually, the one talent servant actually gets what he was sort of expecting of God. So all that to say that this is a normal pattern of judgment throughout Scripture. And if we, under, if we submit to the God of Scripture and we see Him for the God of, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and uh, compassion, then we will, that's who we will get. But if we pursue instead the things uh, of our own devices and spurn God, and though we knew God, we did not uh, worship Him as God, uh, and we take instead the idols of our heart, then He will give us up to those things. Because that's what we want. C.S. Lewis said, there are those uh, who say to God, thy will be done, and then there are those to whom God says, thy will be done. And that's scary. But that's judgment. So, pushback, thoughts, questions? So back to Joshua. They get a direct word from the Lord, this unique to all the people, broad uh, word from the Lord. And it sets the context for the whole book of Judges. The word of the Lord, you've disobeyed. You haven't followed through. You've broken your end of the covenant. And over the several generations that, that the book of Judges uh, has, uh, there may have been some that we see in the time of Samson or Jephthah uh, that never have heard about this word from the Lord, but it doesn't mean he didn't say it. Right? God's word still stands, even if they didn't uh, know it. So, this sets the context, and um, it, this, his angel, this visit from the angel, called his, his condemnation, his disapproval causes weeping, bokim. That's why they ne- rename or call in that context the place of, not the house of God, it's the house of weeping. So, that's what sets the context. Now, uh, we're not done setting the context because we look back for just a minute. Uh, verse 6, it looks like Joshua's still alive, although we know he's already died. But he looks back, we look back for just a minute. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. That's almost a direct quote from the book of Joshua uh, at the end. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work of the Lord that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Now that may not mean anything to you, but listen to this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And that's who we're dealing with throughout Judges. Yes? And I knew that I had read that before. Back in Deuteronomy? Yes. In 6, uh, verse 11, 12, 
children, impress it, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit in the room, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tell them kind of the symbols on your hands and find them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Yeah. Um, but look, look. Says, so look at my next right here. Yeah. <laughs> so in Deuteronomy 6. So Lola's saying that uh, in Deuteronomy 6, that's where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. These words I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And talk about them when you sit around in your house, and when you wake up, when you walk by the day, when you lie down. And, and what Lola's saying is, and so they, they didn't do that. Right? So keep. Be careful that you don't forget. Because they're, they're sitting pretty, right? They're, and they've conquered enough. They've gotten, remember, you know, the 95, we've still got boxes in the house. But we, um, 95% is done. But, but they, it's good enough. Sometimes good enough feels like good enough, right? I just want to watch football because I mean, if I unpack, if I unpack one more box, so um, they just they don't get all the boxes unpacked, and um, and and they just get they get lazy. Now this, let me say, some of you may be sitting here and thinking, well, good gracious, my I've got adult children who aren't walking the Lord. If I fall into this, let me just say, this is God's master plan of evangelism. That we pass it on to our children, who've passed it on to their children. And let me also say that it is so hard. And that it is, uh, and just because you haven't seen God finish it doesn't mean He won't. Um, it is so hard. We know that from our experience, but we also know it from what we see here. These were just regular people. It's not that they were like extremely wicked people, they were just people. They were humans. And their children were humans. And the human heart does not want to hear about it not being God. Not in your life, not in your kids' lives. It's, we don't want to hear it. But the, lack, the next generation's lack of faithfulness does not mean that God's not in control. They, we, we pray against that. We want the next generation to hear uh, and, and to come to faith. We love till it hurts. We teach when we can. We forgive when we don't feel like we ought to forgive. We just, we get used, we enable, whatever, anything for them to come to Christ. It doesn't, just because you don't see it doesn't mean they won't. Just, just I mean, be comforted uh, by that. But yes, uh, yes, the, the indictment is they didn't pass it on to their children. And, and it's how quickly it happens is stunning, right? And it should be familiar to us because we've seen just in my lifetime the, 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 what you've seen because I'm looking around the room, most of you have even more life than I do, right? And so um, the, the change in the cultural narrative has been unbelievably quick. In fact, um, uh, one author I'm listening to right now uh, talk. I, th- I think he quotes somebody else, but he calls it liquid modernity. And what he means that the the um, the cultural concepts change so quickly they don't have time to set. And so, like, if the, by the time you figure out Snapchat, nobody's using Snapchat anymore, right? 
And by the time you think, well, gosh, I, I mean, I guess I'll just go back to Facebook. I mean, like, you know, nobody, nobody under my age, very rarely people under my age are using Facebook. All of you are using Facebook, right? But they've moved on. And so it's, um, it is, it, and that's just one tiny example. The culture changed. My brother is, he turned 38 yesterday. He is so much different culturally than I am. He loves the Lord. He's married. He's got three kids. He's Southern. He looks a lot like I do. But what he understands technologically is so different. The way he thinks about how to communicate with his friends is so different. And then our children will never know a world without this. Many, 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 many more times technology in my hand right now than put men on the moon, right? But my children and your grandchildren will never know a world without instant communication. And communication without, we don't need face-to-face. You got this? It drives me nuts too. And yet it is the world we live in. And so we, you know, there's a lot to think about in in that regard. God has a 1-800 number? Yeah, well. Okay, okay. I haven't heard that one. Um, But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, I mean, right, but the the thing is, is that if we lose face-to-face communication, we lose any indication that we can speak to our Heavenly Father. If we're not getting an email back or a text back or a picture, or if you can't do it in 140 characters, I mean, it's not happening. No, but we send an email. An email, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I mean, you're right. You're right. I mean, there's lots of ways to think about it. This book that I'm, that I'm listening to, it's called The Benedict Option. I think I've talked about it. it is, it's talking about how can we, as Christians, conserve what we have I mean, he, was, he, he said, I've always, I was sort of in this camp of conservative Christians, and then I got concerned, well, I'm not sure what we're conserving. And, um, and, and so he's saying, what, how can we conserve the faith, the biblical faith, across denominational lines, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, those of us who uh, hold Christ in common, hold a lot more in common with each other than we do of people, even in our denomination, who, who don't hold Christ. So, what can we do in order to preserve what we have so that when the culture comes back around and the people cry out, that God, we will have something to offer for God to raise up. But again, we don't have to save God. That's important to hold on to. Alright, before we get start with uh, verse 11, anybody have any pushback, thoughts? How are we doing? Take your temperature? Alright. Okay. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what we're going to hear over and over again. And served the Baals. That's, that's, that's the pagan gods. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is not what they were raised to do. This is not, they went to school. They, they heard it around the dinner table. And yet they rebelled against the Lord. So, Nothing new under the sun. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, 
from among the gods of the peoples who are around them and bow down to them. I mean, this is the, you see, this is a contemporary book. And they, and they provoke the Lord to anger. And they abandon the Lord and serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And He gave them over to their plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Remember, the Lord always was for them. He was the one who had their battles. When they marched out, He was against them. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Right? Remember, their military success had always been the result of the Lord's intervention. Never by their own military prowess. Ever. There is, there is no account. I mean, the, Joshua and the Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. Remember, he they walked around and it crumbled because the Lord smushed it. It was they never. There is not a single account of the Lord's army, the people of Israel, fighting a military battle and winning, unless the Lord gets involved. Now, sometimes they fight; they don't just walk, but it's always says the Lord wins. But when the gods stop fighting for them. They stopped winning, right? Big time. So that's what we see. The people. This is the cycle. This what we're having is still introductory material, and it is describing the cycle. The people rebel. They abandon the Lord. God gets angry. He gives them into the hands of their oppressors, and it's terrible. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges. So again, we're just. He's just describing the cycle who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. That's the peace. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Isn't that interesting? I just, I just love that. That even in the midst of this description of unfaithfulness, always, always the Lord is moved to pity on behalf of His people. It's not pity like, like you and I have pity somebody. But we don't want pity, right? But actually the Lord is, is compassion. He's moved to, to um, this is a beautiful movement uh, to pity. Uh, This is a a loving response. Rather than saying, well, forget you, crazy people, unfaithful. The Lord is moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppress them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out any of them uh, before I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether or whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them uh, into the hand of Joshua, meaning Israel. He did not give the nations into the hand 
uh, of Israel. So, that's the cycle. And that sets up the whole uh, of the book uh, of Judges. So then we see in chapter 3, we see the first three judges. Othniel, he's a pretty good guy. Ehud, not quite as good a guy, but still fairly successful. Shagmar, who we know almost nothing about. But if you were to read chapter 3, what you would see as he introduces Othniel and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of uh, the king of Mesopotamia for eight years when they served them. But when the people cried out, he raised up a deliverer, Othniel, the son of Canaz. So, same thing. It's just the cycle. Othniel was a man of war. He went to war. He defeated them. The land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel died. What's next? You guessed it. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, And so... They go to the Moabites. They're oppressed from the Moabites. Uh, and then Ehud uh, is raised up. Ehud is a um, kill, who kills the king of the Moabites with this, uh, who is very fat. And it's just this kind of a grisly scene. He takes a sword and plunges it in his gut and then leaves him there. And it's, 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 worth, it's worth a read, you know, uh, honestly. Maybe not right before dinner. Um, so, but then what we see as, um, as chapter 4 opens, we get the first sort of extended um, picture of a, uh, of a judge. And that's Deborah. We'll get a few of those. Samson is the longest, and it is one of my favorites. I can't wait till we get to Samson. Three weeks. Um, but Deborah is Deborah's strange. Deborah is... Um, Deborah... It calls upon Barak to be the military leader because Deborah's not a military leader. She's a prophetess. And it's unusual, not only because she was not a military leader, but because she was a she. <laughs> it's very strange. And I have wondered, not because I'm sexist, but because I'm just curious if the fact that she was a woman judging was, in fact, would have been considered at the time judgment. I don't know. I she, was, she is clearly portrayed as a good leader, a faithful woman. Uh, so I hope you hear that as just my own curiosity, trying to understand the mind of that culture, not because I think, oh, women shouldn't be in leadership. That's not what I think. But Deborah is unusual because she's a woman. But she's the best of the judges. She is, without doubt. Um, She's known for her wisdom. She says she, she would sit by the palms of Deborah. And, and uh, probably they were named for her, not the other way around. But, um, but they would come to her and they would seek out her wisdom. And, uh, and in fact, when she calls upon uh, Barak, she prophesies to him. Did not God say, raise up 10,000 men and take them to Mount Tabor? So that's up here. So we've already we've seen the Lord down here. And we've seen... Uh, the angel Lord out here. This is happening up here. That's the. It looks. It looks like a star, probably from where you are. It's supposed to be a little explosion, like you see in the Bible maps, where the where the where the um, fights were. A little explosion. What the green is is the territory they had conquered, and what the white is is everything else that they're supposed to have conquered. You know, even in David's time, over here the Philistia, the Philistines. I mean, they had trouble with the Philistines forever. Moabites are down here. Um, but they're just always having uh, trouble. Somebody said that looks like Snoopy, but um, 
Uh, it's kind of just what my Bible map looked like. It's not drawn to scale. But, uh, uh, but anyway, so we're just a little south. Mount Tabor is a little south uh, west of, of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And that's where um, Barak comes. He takes 10,000 men. Re- a really interesting um, thing. Sisera is the, is the general for Jabin. Jabin is the king of the Canaanites that they're going to battle. Uh, and, um, and Deborah says, the Lord has told you, Barak. Uh, and Barak says, well, I'll go if you go to Deborah. Again, so he's... He's going to go. He's going to obey. But he's, 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 again, he's hedging his bets a little bit. But Deborah goes, and they route. Uh, it says, the Lord defeated the Canaanites. So Jabin is captured. Sisera runs off. Sisera is the general. What, one of the things it said about Sisera and, and this army is they had 700, I mean, 900 uh, chariots of iron. That would have been like saying they had uh, 900 cruise missiles. And Israel had baseball bats, right? That is, they had, um, they were completely overmatched. And yet, not a one of them, the Canaanites, survived, uh, except for Sisera, who ran off. It's a very interest, uh, interesting, another kind of a grisly story. He comes to the, the tent of this Kenite, and the Kenites were friends of the Israelites. Uh, Moses' father-in-law, the Jethro, the um, the uh, Midianite, uh, the Midianites were the Kenites, or somehow they're all in there. But that's the same line. And and Jael, this um, woman, not to be confused with Jor-El, which is uh, Superman's father. That's a totally different thing. But Jael uh, invites Sisera into her tent, and she said, and he says, um, "Well, gosh, okay." And um, and she. He co- she covers him up with a blanket. He says, can I have some water? She gives him milk instead. It's this sort of weird, like, what's going on? We know that she's married, but her husband's gone. And, and, then, uh, and then while he's sleeping, she takes a tent peg and drives it through his temple. <laughs> and, um, and then she goes to, the, uh, to, the, to Barak and goes, ta-da! <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and everybody's elated, because, but it's, it's grisly. Like, it's just, and to me, it says, the Lord was gave... Gave it, and yet, they're. Not, I mean, they're. These are these folks are rough. These are rough people. They're not. So I don't know how they were. They were supposed to defeat Cicero, but that just sounds a little extreme to me. To take a tent peg and drive it through somebody's temple while he's asleep. Um, but nevertheless, that's that's how it happened. What's that? Well, it, you know, it, it, it was much easier to do it while he was asleep. But she lures him in. You know, she lures him in with kindness, at least. I, I seems like that's all she lured him in with. And then, um, and then they die. And then uh, he dies. And then, um, but, so again, oh wait, I'm a, I missed my, my, night, my, my notes here. The indictment is um, uh, over and over, that they had seen the deeds of the Lord, but they didn't maintain their faith. So, ju- Judges chapter 5, we have this, it's, again, it's a, it's a poem. It's sort of like, it recalls, although it comes first, it recalls the Magnificat, when, when Mary is, um, is told that she is going to carry the, the Lord, and Elizabeth um, 
uh, speaks to her and says, you know, blessed are you among women. And Mary responds with this beautiful song. And there's another couple, there's several other incidents. That is sort of based on another one. What, what is it? What is it in the Samuel's Old Testament? Samuel's mother. Yeah, that's right. Hannah, right? And the song of Hannah. And yet, so this song sounds a little like that with Deborah. And actually it says Deborah and Barak were singing it together. Um, but it, and it, it has this interesting thing about how all the, the tribes came out to help with this battle, and yet where was Naphtali, and where was Dan? Because they didn't come. You know, so they're wondering, again, cracks, there, there, there's, there's not a um, consistency in Israel. And, um, and then it says, and they had peace for 40 years. And then, <laughs> chapter 6, verse 1 says what? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, they did not, they had seen the deeds of the Lord. Even then, we have another instance of God being faithful, and they didn't maintain their faith. Why? Because they needed a king. Right? And we're just going to, I mean, they're going to make that point over and over again. They needed a king. That's the message of Judges. But it's also that we need a king. That's the Christian message of Judges. We need a king. Because our hearts do the same thing. If not in scale, certainly in kind. That our hearts rebel against God. And we need a king. That's the Christian message. So, how is this to be applied in your life? If this is the Word of God, if this is living and active, if this does speak to you, how does it inform the way that you live? What will you take home from tonight? You need to wake up. Wake up. What do you mean by that, Ed? Uh, do what you're supposed to do. Okay. Follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. Do what you're supposed to do. As Christians, we know that that is not so that the Lord won't get angry. Right. But because He has already put out His own anger on Himself in the cross and that we do that as a fruit of all that He's given to us, but certainly we're still called to holiness. Right? Yes, yeah, Sissy. So it says, so tragically, the people never learn that rebellion against God is a sure road to disaster. So it couldn't, it could, you could amend that to say not the people, but people. <laughs> Sadly, people never learn. Right. Right. And yet, what, that's what we want, right? That's what our hearts want. I want to be the judge of my own heart. I want to know what's right for myself. But when we have that happen, it does create chaos. And then through it all, however, God in His faithfulness saves the people when they truly repent. Right. And so He is. He's slow to anger and full of compassion, abounding in steadfast love over and over again. I, what else? What might we take him? Do you think God said, you know what, they're never going to get it right. I'm going to have to send somebody that's going to get it. Do I think that God said, no, you know what, they're never going to get it right. I'm going to have to send somebody. No, I think Christ was always plan A. I mean, we were always, 
what, what Judges says is that they needed a king. What, what Chronicles says is that the king didn't really help that much. We need a Savior. So all this is pointing us to Christ. I think, I mean, I think, that, I think that from the crunch of the apple, and even probably honestly before that, that God's always heading towards redemption. Honestly, what we have, and theologians would, would say this, what we have in Christ as redeemed persons is better than what Adam would have had had he not fallen as uh, if he had never had redemption. So we, we know the mercy of God. If, if there had never been a fall, we'd never, we wouldn't have known mercy. We would we have known perfection in that sense, but we would never have known grace and mercy. And the case has been made, um, could be made, that, and many theologians have made it, that what we have by knowing Him and His grace is actually preferred over, over what we would have had. You know, I'm sitting here listening to all this, and I'm just looking at time in my life, and the rebellion over the last 40 to 50 years is just compound. Mm. Look at our society today. I just, it's frightening. Oh, I, at first I thought you were talking about whether the rebellion in your own life is compounding. No, 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 no. Um, but, I was going to ask the same question. <laughs> but you mean in our society. But again, what we said at the beginning was what this says is that God, regardless of what it looks like to us, even though His promises aren't fulfilled in our lifetime, that we look at our society and say, what in the world is going on that God remains on His throne and will bring it back around? Uh, so to me, I, I agree with you, and yet it also says to me we must be in constant prayer for the next generation, for our children, uh, for the next generation of clergy. Please, I will tell you that is a that is something that keeps me awake at night. It is is raising up the next generation of clergy. So so um, so yes, I think it calls us as faithful people to prayer. Yes, ML. Was it the great missionary, uh, was it um, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, who, who said he vowed to do nothing <laughs> except what was done in prayer? Like that was his, that was his whole, only strategy was prayer. And, and, just to, and then just to see what happened. Right. I think that was right. So, may, may I ask one more question? Yes. Stepping back here. Sisera was the king of Canaan? He was the general. General. Yeah. Jabin. Jabin was the, the king. Okay. Sisera was the general. Yeah. All right, well, we are uh, basically at time. So what I hope you hear from this uh, is that God is faithful. I mean, that's really, the, God is absolutely the hero. We look at uh, people, you know, we, we do the Sunday school coloring book of Samson uh, or Je- Deborah, Jeff. We don't do Jeff very much because you know, we don't know who that is. But, um, but it is uh, remarkable to think how corrupt and crazy these people were. And yet, the one who is the hero in this book is God. And so it remains for us today. And so it is our part to be faithful uh, to Him, but for us as one, because we see that He, his, he has put, put that rightful anger 
uh, out on the cross. And so that when we cry out to Him, we always have our prophet. We always have our King. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we, can, we must read it through that lens. That this is pointing us ahead um, to the great judge uh, who will come. Alright? Uh, let's just close with a prayer. Father, we thank You for uh, these judges. And we thank You... Um, for the example and the mistakes, and we pray that we wouldn't have to make all the mistakes, but we would look at theirs and uh, be called uh, ourselves to repentance. We pray that we respond in faith uh, to your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.